Today we're going to be looking at the subject of suffering. It's one of the topics that many people, whether we are believers or not, uh, struggle with. Some of us don't struggle with as much because we're living comfortable lives. But sooner or later, suffering comes knocking at our door. Of course, the early church to which this letter is addressed was suffering in more ways than one. Not only common suffering known to all, but they were, had a new dimension of suffering. The suffering that came along with faith, their faith in Christ. And so we're going to be looking at these two verses. And so keep that in mind as we read verses 10 and 11 of 1 Peter chapter 5. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. We bless you for your wonderful word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In your name we pray, amen. Please be seated, beloved. So in the last two Sundays, we uh, took time to consider our powerful enemy, and we noticed that he primarily uses deception as his weapon of choice against God's people. His lies are crafty and powerful. We also stopped to consider the necessary posture required for a Christian to successfully resist this formidable foe, sobriety in spirit, alertness in prayer, and steadfastness in our walk. In today's passage, we're going to see how Peter shifts his focus from what we are called to do, humble ourselves, resist Satan, to God's eternal plan, to what he is doing and what he is planning. Peter is giving us a window, so to speak, into God's wisdom and dealings with his people. So far in chapter 5, he has been saying to God's people, this is what you are to do. Exhortation, basically, with the grace that God supplies. You are elders, you're supposed to shepherd the flock, because you are accountable to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Everyone be subject one to another. Clothe yourselves with humility. Resist Satan as you humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. These are exhortation addressed to the church. But then as he comes to the end of his letter, he shifts gear again. And he goes back to what he started with in the beginning of his letter. He draws the reader's attention to what God is doing. Peter focuses on God's work in the lives of the church. You'll notice, for example, in chapter 1, these words from uh, right from the beginning, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Not one verse, not one word about this is what you're to do. You are to be born again, you are to be saved, you are to be sanctified, nothing. It's what God is doing. It's what God is doing in the church. So in verses 1 through 5, we don't see any action that is required of the believer. The focus is on what God is doing. And then later, we have the injunctions. We have the exhortations from Peter to the believers, right? It's the same approach that Paul uses in his letters. For example, if you take the letter of, of Paul to the Ephesians, you'll notice that he says, for example, in chapter 1, these, these are the blessing, blessings that are ours in Christ. So Paul highlights what God has done for us. Then, as he nears the end, he gives exhortation. He tells them to put on the entire armor of God. That's in chapter 6. He doesn't start with an exhortation. He starts with, this is what God is doing. So Peter did the same thing. But as he comes to the end, he goes back. So why does he circle back to that? Because it was necessary to remind them who were suffering what God is doing in the midst of their pain, what God is doing in their suffering. So as he concludes his letter, Peter saying basically providentially God is at work in the pain. Your suffering is not pointless. It's not happening at random. It's not by chance. In fact, Peter wants his readers to see that in his infinite wisdom, God determines the suffering we experience. That's the first point. And we're going to look at that. The strength we receive. And finally, the success of our calling. Three things. He determines the suffering we experience. The strength we receive. And the success of our calling. Unless we understand Peter's perspective, we will only get overwhelmed with pain. Whenever pain comes knocking, and it will, a disease, a death, abuse, whatever it is, it comes knocking at our door, a war, things unraveling around us, financial pain, whatever it may be. Whenever suffering comes knocking, if we do not embrace this perspective, we are going to be either embittered against God, we are going to doubt His care, we are going to turn our backs to him. We are going to consider another option because we do not believe that God is sovereign sovereign in the suffering. We think that we're suffering alone. That's a lie of the enemy. Every Sunday, that's what we do. We debunk lies. And we do it with no other tool except one, truth, the truth of his word. And that's what we're looking at today. We need to... Understand that the enemy wants us to doubt God's care, God's power, God's goodness. And that is why he attacks truth. Now, these early Christians were suffering for their faith. And Peter wants to close his letter by drawing 
their attention to God's sovereign power, God's sovereign wisdom, God's love for them, and he wants them to know that suffering does not have the last word. Now look at your life. You are suffering today? Say it to yourself. Suffering does not have the last word. Pain does not have the last word. God rules and overrules in the hardships of life. Remind yourself of that. Turn to his word over and over and ask God to reveal this as you read his word. Black death is the most fatal pandemic in the history of mankind. It took place in the 14th century, killing an estimated 25 to 30 million people in Europe alone. Cadavers were being stacked as lasagna on the streets because they just didn't know what to do with them. One of the countries that was impacted by the Black Death was Germany, where Martin Luther was ministering the gospel. He had just discovered the five solas, and with passion, he was preaching this wonderful truth of sola gratia, sola fide, solos Christos, sola scriptura, and solideo gloria. He was preaching that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, based on scripture alone, and all to the glory of God alone. The mortality rate was high, incredibly high. And the saying that was popular in that day was this, in the midst of life, death. In other words, we are born to die. You may have heard that saying. I remember when I went to Italy, that was the first time I heard it for, the, for, for more than the first time, but the way it impacted, me for, it impacted me so particularly, well, we are born to die. We are born to die. They always kept saying this. In the midst of life, death. That was the saying. Well, Martin Luther would have none of it. He would go to the pulpit Sunday after Sunday, and he'd say this. In the midst of death, life. In the midst of death, life. They, they were bewildered. How could he say that? Things are so bleak. Our children are dying. Our, our parents are dying. We're left homeless. Suffering is all around. Why is he saying this? Because he said the, the joy is found in the gospel. In the gospel. You need to embrace the gospel. So in this passage, we have the answers to the complex problems of suffering as they impact God's people. And we will see that suffering is never pointless. So first, the suffering God's people experience is granted by God. Pay attention to this. Very important. The suffering you have in your life is not there by chance. It's not that that painful thing that you dread came into your life randomly. No at all. No child of God suffers outside of the sovereign will of God. We can't fully grasp this. We can't comprehend it, especially when we are hurting. When we are in pain, when Job was suffering, he wondered, where is God? And you will wonder as well. But God is there. He is in your pain. It could be the death of a beloved family member. It could be someone who is ill. It could be a child that is fatally sick. 
It could be a, a number, a host of things. Once we believe that suffering in the life of a child, of, of a God's child, is not random, we can accept pain with a sense of trust. Trust in a good God. The God who oversees this vast, finely tuned universe in which we live is also in control of the minutest detail of our lives. He not only rules the macro, he rules the micro. Scientists more and more are flabbergasted with the fact that the universe is so finely tuned. And they're beginning more and more to see that evolution just simply doesn't make much sense. It's a die-hard theory, unfortunately. And many people still cling dearly to it. And it's being taught in universities, CGIPs, and in schools. But the more they become uh, erudited, they become aware of the fine-tuned movement of the universe, and the more they realize it doesn't make any sense. God is in charge of the macro. And this is why God speaks to his people Israel in his day who were doubting his care for them. Small little Israel compared to the powerful surrounding pagan countries. God has forgotten us. We're falling through the cracks. And you may feel that way. Well, this is what God says to these people who felt, God's people, who felt they were falling through the cracks. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26. Raise your eyes on high. That's what you should do. Go outside your house in the middle of the night, of a starry night, and look up. And see who has created these stars. The one who brings out their multitude, before people ever knew there was a multitude, by number. He calls them all by name. Every star is named by God. We put numbers next to them because we don't know what to name them. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Isn't that wonderful? God rules the macro. God rules this universe. And thank God he does, because we would have a lot to be concerned with. You know, people want to save the planet. Good luck. We can't save ourselves. We want to save the planet. Or as Jordan Peterson says, before you try to fix the planet, fix your room. Right? But what about the micro? What about the small things? What about me, little me? Is God interested in little me? Well, the story of Joseph, I think, the son of Jacob, gives us the answer to this question. Because in his life, we see God ruling and overruling in the micro. And most of us are familiar with the story of Joseph. I'll just give you some highlights. Out of pure envy, Joseph's brother, when he was 17 years old, sold him to a caravan of slave traders who eventually brought him hundreds of miles away into Egypt and there sold him to a captain of the Egyptian army called Potiphar. In that house, he was eventually accused by Potiphar's wife of molestation. And because of this, he was thrown into prison. The whole ordeal lasted 13 years. It went from bad to worse. So was God intricately involved in Joseph's life? While he was a bystander, right? Was he hoping that things would go well for him? 
Was he just good and just, but not all-powerful? I'm good God. I'm a just God. You know, I'm not an all-powerful God. Because many people think that. This is the position taken by Rabbi Harold Kushner, who wrote a bestseller entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. That title is off. Bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things happen to sinners deserving of death. That's the first thing we need to understand. But then, if there is that title that can be applied to any person, it would be Jesus Christ. In fact, it should be when awful things happen to the good person. But this book resonated with many people. It was a bestseller for many weeks. And there's a lot that we can say about the book, but two points I want to draw your attention to. You see, Rabbi Kushner wrote, God is just, God is good, but he's not all-powerful. Here's a quote from the book. Let me suggest that the author of the book of Job takes the position which neither Job nor his friends take. He believes in God's goodness and in Job's goodness and is prepared to give up his belief in the proposition that God is all-powerful. Well, this is rubbish. Because if you look, look at the last chapters of the book of Job, that's what God says. I'm all-powerful. That's the whole point. That's why he mentions one animal after another animal. He says, who controls all this? Who's in charge of the universe? Who's in charge of everything? That's what God is saying. I'm in charge. I'm all-powerful, Job. But somehow... Rabbi Kushner doesn't get this through the reading of Job. Page 44 of his book. If God is a God of justice and not of power, doesn't believe that, doesn't believe God is all-powerful, then he can still be on our side when bad things happen to us. He can know that we are good and honest people who deserve better. Our misfortunes are none of his doing, and so we can turn to him for help. That sounds nice. Sounds very comforting. Oh, yes, God is good. Yes, God is just. But right, he's not all powerful. Whatever is hitting me now, I'll just hope that it goes away. Wow, that is really worrisome. Many people cannot come to terms with a good and all powerful God. Those two attributes for them are irreconcilable in one supreme God that allows suffering and evil in this world. You know why? Because their God is too small. Rabbi Kushner's God is far too small. That's not the God of the Bible. If Joseph would have embraced Kushner's belief of, God, of a good God, but one that is not all-powerful, he would have had every reason to doubt God's power and the outcome of his situation. He would have had every reason to worry I would have worried, so would you. Every reason to doubt the outcome of his ordeal. What kept Joseph sane and strong throughout his suffering was the truth that God was both good and all-powerful. And we can deduce this from his answer to his brothers. When they finally were alone with him, Jacob is dead, the father. They're in Egypt, and Joseph is now prime minister. He had all the power in his hand. He could have anybody killed at will, anyone eliminated at will. 
He could have had anybody put in prison at will. Joseph had the last say. And they're terrified because they thought Jacob was the one who was keeping them alive, keeping Joseph's anger from being manifested. And so they send messengers to Joseph. Please, we're really sorry. Please forgive us. What we did was wrong. We put you through such pain. We should never have done it. Please, please, please. And they're begging for their lives. See, they couldn't go anywhere else. Everywhere else there was starvation and famine. All they could do is stay in Egypt. But Joseph is the prime minister. What are we going to do? So they said, let's just beg him for mercy. This is how Joseph answers in Genesis 50, 19 to 21. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Isn't that something? He had the power to make them pay. But he wasn't going to do that. As for you, you meant evil against me. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He calls it for what it is. It's evil what you did. You hated me for no reason at all, and you made me suffer a whole lot. But God meant it for good. I would have never said that. Had he believed that God is simply good and that God is just but not all-powerful. He is saying specifically that God was in control of the entire process. From A to Z, God meant it for good. Can you look at your pain and say that? Can you look at that point in your life that you want to forget but keeps haunting you at night? When you fall asleep, you can't forget this certain pain, this suffering. Can you say these words? God meant it for good. Because if you can't say that, you need to come to, a, to that point where you surrender fully and you trust this God who weaved that suffering into your life. Otherwise, you will be always in fear, always in doubt, or embittered. Only because Joseph understood God to be all-powerful, all-wise, all-good, was he able to answer his brothers in this way and endure with grace the hardships that he wrongfully endured. This perspective allowed him also to do good to his brothers, not because they deserved it, but because he realized God is in control and I could be good and merciful to those who did me wrong. Allow me to quote the well-known Victorian preacher Charles Spurgeon. And I've added a part to it that he didn't say, so I'll add that part if you allow me. He said, God is too good to be unkind. He is too wise to be mistaken. And we could add, and he is too powerful to let evil triumph. When we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. When we cannot trace his hand, we don't understand what he's doing, how he's weaving it, we must trust his heart. Read The Hiding Place, a powerful book by a wonderful woman who hated God for the evil that befell her. Corey Ten Boom ended up in the concentration camp. That book really ministered to me. It's an old book. But she speaks about her pain, her anger with God, and how the Lord brought her to the point of fully trusting, seeing how her experience in the concentration camp was woven by God while she saw her father die, her mother die, her sister die. And then when she finally understood this truth, she was set free to minister the gospel. The Holy Spirit through Peter 
was reminding the suffering Christians of his day and us today that suffering is only for a little while. It has a shelf life. Suffering doesn't last forever. But more importantly, it doesn't have the last word. It cannot escape God's sovereign and wise rule. If suffering was not at God's disposal, if it was not a tool in his hands, James could never have written these powerful words to the early church. In James 1, 2-4, this is what we read. James 1, 2-4, consider it all joy. Now, if God is not in control, why should I rejoice when suffering comes my way? Why should I sing when I'm in trial? Why do Christians sing when we are suffering? Think about it. The best hymns were forged in the furnace of affliction. When I survey the wondrous cross, or when peace like a river attends my way, these hymns and others like them were forged in affliction. Not when things were going well for them. That's why they were, they're so powerful and they have such longevity. Consider all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What powerful words. So God grants us. He custom makes the suffering that comes into the life of his children. Secondly, God grants us the strength we need to face it. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory. Here Peter drives the point even further. He draws the believer's attention to God's storehouse of grace. His grace is inexhaustible. Every good thing in this life has a limit. Everything has an expiry date. Sunrise, well, there's sunset. The summer weather, well, there is the fall and then winter. Every good thing. The birth of a baby brings such joy, but that baby grows up and eventually becomes an adult and then passes away. A good job can turn sour. A good friend can forsake us. A good marriage eventually comes to an end when one of them dies. Every good thing in this life comes to an end. But God's grace is inexhaustible. There is no way we can drain the storehouse of heaven. There's no way. And that's why he's called the God of all grace. In these words, we discover the reason why believers can suffer a little while and not faint. Because God of all grace supplies what the Christian needs as he goes through troubled waters. What a beautiful expression. Nowhere else in scripture do we find this expression. The God of all grace is a theme implicit in all of the Bible. It's there. But the actual expression is penned by Peter alone. In fact, you'll recall in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, when we dealt with this verse, that Peter introduces the topic of grace with these beautiful words, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another 
as good stewards of the multifaceted grace of God. In verse 4 of 10 of this letter, chapter 4, verse 10, Peter points to the variety of the many expressions of God's grace as it flows through his people, as we serve one another, as we pray one for another, as we minister one to another, as we go out of our way one for another, as we give a lift, make a visit, a phone call, send cards, pray, and whatever we do one towards another, we do it because of God's grace. It's not, our, it's not us. We don't have the strength. We don't have the capability. This speaks of the richness of God's grace as he equips us for service. But in the words, the God of all grace, we are introduced to another aspect of grace. It's a message found, like I said, in all of Scripture. Throughout the Bible, we understand that he's the God of all grace. And he supplies us grace according to the need we're in because his storehouse is inexhaustible. Now think about it for a moment. How could Daniel survive Babylon? This powerful empire that swallowed its enemies and made them clones of Babylonians. He told Daniel, you're going to dress like a Babylonian? You're going to eat Babylonian food? You're going to learn the Chaldean language? You are going to be Babylonian and forget Israel and forget your God. How did Daniel survive that? How was he able to pray three times a day? How was he able to say, look, test me with vegetables only for 10 days? And then you can see. How did Daniel survive such an evil empire? There he was. Everything was crushing on him. And yet we see him thrive. Why? Because of the God of all grace. That's why. Had there been no God of all grace, there would have been a different outcome. We would not have the story of Daniel in the Bible. We would have had another story, a despondent one, a sad one. How did Job endure as he suffered like no other person, loss after loss in rapid-fire succession? When he said, cursed be the day that I was born. How did he survive that ordeal, a painful one? Because God ministered to him, unbeknownst to him, because he is the God of all grace, even when totally left alone. How did Daniel, or David rather, survive the hunt? For years, King Saul hunted him like a dog canvassing the land of Israel in search for this little David teenager. How did David survive all that? Because he discovered the God of all grace. How do you survive the ordeals? How did you come to this point? How did you, how were you able to pray? How were you able to keep going on? Was it your strength? Was it your ability? No. It's because of the God of all grace. That's who he is. He is the God who continues to supply us with the grace we need, with the strength we need, so that we can have a story to tell. We have a story to tell. And notice to whom God provides this marvelous grace. In verse 10, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He supplies grace to the called. He supplies, now there's common grace, that's for everybody. 
the sunset, rainfall, the beautiful uh, country we live in, and the fact that we have access to water, and all the many blessings that this country affords, right? That's common grace. But that is not the grace that Peter is talking about here. He's talking about uncommon grace, extraordinary grace that comes from God's great and vast storehouses, the inexhaustible storehouse of grace. It's given to the called. The God of all grace gives from his rich storehouse abundant grace to those who are called to the eternal glory of God. Why? Because suffering cannot get intense. It can become very wearisome and burdensome. And it can cause us to get discouraged. And because God does not want our faith to fail, he will supply us the grace we need. He will strengthen us and train his children through the great period of trials so that their faith does not get short-circuited. In all your suffering, you are not left alone. Job thought he was alone. All the while, God was with him. Every single moment, he felt abandoned. And you may feel that way right now, but God cannot abandon his own. Only one could rightfully say, why have you forsaken me? And that is Jesus Christ. We can never say those words. We may feel it, but we're never abandoned. In your hardship, God does not lose sight of you. He doesn't lose sight of the birds in the air. He doesn't lose sight of your hair. He knows them by numbers. He cannot lose sight of those he has redeemed. That's why Paul's words to the Corinthians are so impactful when we read them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, this is what we read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. The Father of mercies is akin to the God of all grace. But notice how he explains how this mercy is made manifest. And the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. You see, the God of all grace is the God of all comfort. And of course, he provides this comfort to his children. As we're suffering, he comforts us. He strengthens us. He sends his word and, and strengthens us in the inside so that in our pain, in our trial, we can comfort others. How many times as you were in sorrow, you made a phone call to someone and encouraged him? Did you have the strength to do that, my brother? No, it was the God of comfort. Comforting you so that you in turn can comfort someone else. And I know many Christians who do this. I've seen people who were in such an ordeal and yet comforting others. That's why he is the God of all grace. And for this reason, we can rest assured. Yes, he grants us suffering, the suffering that we experience. It's, he's the one who gives it to us. It's custom made. And with that, he, he provides also the strength we need to endure in our suffering. And lastly, he grants the success that we long for. The success that we long for. 
Let's reread the verse. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Our God will not fail. Find great comfort in that, believer. Our God will not fail. Here we see how God's purpose for his children is fulfilled perfectly, impeccably. He is unthwarted in what he has conceived as a plan. Whatever God has determined regarding you as his child, God will carry it out. His plan cannot be sabotaged. Paul reminds us of this in his letter to the Philippians. For I am confident of this very thing, he says in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work among you will complete it. So I can't complete the good work in me. God completes it. The completes it by the day of Jesus Christ. He'll bring his children from being something unpolished with a whole bunch of rough edges, someone who has a whole bunch of growing up to do, and he brings that child through the suffering, through the pain, to the point that he can now be presented to God. He will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. God will complete the work that he's begun in all of us. He will perfect, he will confirm, he will strengthen, he will establish us. He will perfect our faith. He will confirm our calling. Do you doubt that he has called you? He'll confirm it. He will strengthen you in the inner man. And yes, he will establish you in his ways. This is the God we serve. All these verbs point to the complete work of grace in the life of the believer. The believer who suffers now cannot even begin to imagine what awaits him when he finally stands before his awesome and holy God. Complete in every way. How glorious are the words of Jude, who reminds us in verses 24 and 25, now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling. Are you afraid of falling short in your pain? Does your trial concern you that you will faint? How often I've prayed that. Lord, if I have to suffer as I get older, and I will have diminished strength, and I will have other faculties that will come to that will come to be less than what they are now. Let me continue to bring you glory. Here, Peter, or Jude rather, reminds us that he will protect us from stumbling, stumbling into unbelief. He will make you stand in the presence of his glory. He will present you blameless, how? With great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be glory, be majesty, dominion, Authority. You see, he's saying he's in charge. He's in charge. He's in charge. Before all time, now, and forever. Isn't that amazing? As God's children, we want to please and honor the Lord with our walk. We desire our lives to bring glory to his name. No true Christian desires to be barren and fruitless. No true Christian desires that. Our desire is that Christ's sacrifice on the cross, bring abundant fruit. We want not only 30, not only 60, we want a hundredfold from our lives. But that is a tall order. 
and we cannot make it happen. You don't have it in you. I don't have it in me. That's the truth. But to God, all things are possible. And he does take someone who is condemned, dead, blind, lost, finished, deserving of judgment, and he makes him stand in his presence with exceeding joy. That is God. How wonderful is our God. All things are possible to him. Our desire for righteousness, our desire for holiness, a life that is pleasing to God becomes an inevitable reality. But he must use suffering as a tool in the process. Affliction is part of the equation. God is in control. He's the mathematician, and he makes the equation come out to his perfect plan, his results. He will perfect, he will confirm, he will strengthen and establish you as a redeemed child of God. You can rejoice. You can trust him. He won't fail. So now we see that while God's people suffer, God is not a bystander with his fingers crossed, hoping that things will go well. We don't need to knock on wood. We just need to open our Bibles. We don't need to hope that things get better. We need to trust in his word. He is monitoring, monitoring every aspect of our life. Nothing falls through the cracks. He is engaged in the macro. He is engaged in the micro. That's how wise, how powerful our God is. And in our pain, the God of all grace provides the strength we need to endure because he is perfecting us, he's confirming us, he's strengthening us, he is establishing us. God will have the final say. And it's for this reason that Peter wraps up this section of his letter with praise, doxology. That's what praise is. Uh, doxology is praise. By saying, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. In other words, let it be. To him be dominion. He has sovereignty. He has authority. It's incontestable. He has power. He is in control now, forever. In Revelation 1.6, John reiterates the same truth when he says, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. When you look around you, you don't see God having dominion. You don't see God in control. Chaos is in control. And the world seems to be falling apart and unraveling before our very eyes. And if you're into the news and if you're watching a lot of it and you're watching a lot of uh, other news platforms, you'll be discouraged. For every five minutes of news, read at least 15 minutes of Scripture. Calculate how much time you spend with the news, with every kind of uh, platform out there. And then say that this is how much time I spend in the week, then this is how much time I'm going to spend in the Word. And your perspective will be different. You will not be as depressed. You will not be as complaining. You will be more grateful and more joyful in your outlook. Yes, to Him be the glory and the dominion forever. God grants to His children the suffering that they experience. If suffering be random and out of God's control, how can we be at peace? How can we not worry? You are suffering for a little while, Peter says. There's a shelf life, but more importantly, God is in charge. Secondly, the strength we need while we suffer is provided by him, by his grace, because he is the God of all grace. And without his grace, we won't make it. We will be overwhelmed 
and pain and suffering and evil will have the last say. And the success we long for as we suffer, as we are afflicted, as we go through our trials and hardship, is only possible because he grants it. There is no other success apart from God. If God is not sovereign, then how can we be sure that we will make it with exceeding joy and blameless in his presence? He is perfecting, he is confirming, he is establishing, and strengthening you, child of God. You see, suffering for God's children is never, never, never pointless. Remind yourself of that every single day. This suffering that I'm going through, this pain, this hardship, this trial is not pointless. It's God-ordained, and God will have the last say. To the atheist, suffering is totally pointless. I've spoken to people who don't believe in God, and I've spoken to atheists who are die-hard atheists. There are very few of them, by the way. Most people just say they're atheists, but they really don't know what they're saying. But a die-hard atheist will say, suffering is nothing but a process in the evolutionary chain. That's all. It's just a process. Eventually, it will all be gone. We're becoming better and better and better. But the same person, when I spoke to him about his daughter, who is deadly sick, will cry. Is this suffering pointless? He doesn't know what to say. To the atheist, suffering is totally pointless because he doesn't know the God of all grace. To the Buddhist, suffering is avoidable. All you need to do is remove desire. No desire, said Buddha, no suffering. But we desire to live. I mean, does it make sense to desire not to live? And because you desire to live, suffering is inevitable. Buddha was off. To the secular Christian, to the Christian who does not embrace scriptures as the authoritative, sufficient, inerrant word of God, suffering is not under God's control. Like Rabbi Kushner, the secular Christian, and I believe there are some in our midst, the secular Christian believes that God is a benevolent grandfather. He is just, he is good, but not all-powerful. That's what Rabbi Kushner says. And you may agree with that. If you do, you live in fear. Because who knows the outcome of your pain. I will close the words of Paul, found in Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What a powerful passage. He's saying, if I take all the sufferings of this life and I put them all in one basket and I should put them on a scale and then on the other side of the scale there's the glory that's going to be revealed to me. All the glory, the joy, the fact that I'll see him face to face and I put it on this side of the scale, this side will far outweigh. They're not worthy to be compared to the glory that is going to be revealed. What does he mean by that? Recently, my niece gave birth to a beautiful baby girl. But throughout her pregnancy, she went through an ordeal. I'm not going to go into details. You moms can understand, but it was unpleasant, very unpleasant. And her life was curtailed in many ways. But when that baby was born, she said nothing about suffering, nothing about pain. She doesn't go to her and say, you know, little Cammie, you made me go through a lot. There's none of that. 
the pain, the, the suffering, the ordeal is a faint memory. At best, a faint memory. Now, she may talk about it one day as she gathers with her moms and say, you know, I, did, I went through this and that, but not in a sense of regret. Because the joy of having that child, the wonder of a new life in that home, far outweighs any pain that she experienced, any suffering, any ordeal. That's what will happen to us. The only suffering we're going to be talking about in heaven is the sufferings of Christ. We're not going to be talking about your suffering, brother. If we talk about your suffering, it's how God gave you grace how he was the God of all grace, how he was sovereign in your suffering, and how he weaved victory into your life, and how he brought you home, safe, sound, strong, blameless rejoicing. That's what we're going to be talking about. That's the truth. That's worth it all. That's why we need God's word, church. If we don't have God's word, we don't have this understanding. We will go out of this place and say, oh my goodness, life is so hard. We're going to have to deal with all the situations. Yes, in the midst of life, there's death. And we're going to be talking like the rest who do not know the Lord. And maybe that's the way you're talking because you have yet to discover the amazing truth of the gospel. Embrace it. Embrace it. There is nothing greater than this wonderful, glorious word that brings such joy as we let it sink deep into our lives. Let's praise God for his amazing ways. Let's thank him for his sovereign rule. Let's all together praise him right now in prayer. Oh, Father, we come to you. We are so, so very grateful for your word, how it brings such solace, such joy, such peace. We live in a troubled world. We live in such turmoil and chaos. When we hide ourselves in that quiet place with you and this Bible open on our laps, oh, what joy, oh, what peace, oh, what strength become ours. May each one of your children receive this precious verse, this precious word that we went over today, that we read and meditated on. Thank you for enabling me to share that which you've placed in my heart for the sake of your flock, your redeemed, your elect, so they will one day come into the presence of your, of your presence, blameless and with exceeding joy. Thank you, Lord, for it gives us such comfort. And for those who do not know you, for those who are still in darkness, and for those who are living in fear, reveal your truth to them. May the gospel Give them new life. Draw them by the power of the Spirit to yourself, O Lord. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.